and uh, the guys do a great job of coordinating as possible the themes of the message with the music that we sing. That's a great introduction to the lesson this morning. I, I also, though, before I get into that, I want to piggyback on what Larry said. We actually had a good turnout for Sunday school this morning, but if you're not coming to Sunday school, I would strongly encourage you to. I'm sitting there this morning thinking about it's just nice to sort of soak in the message of the gospel as they were talking about it one person after another. It's an interview format, and it was just so encouraging not only to be reminded, but simply to hear it again and again and again. So if at all possible, I'd sure encourage you to join in those next several weeks at least. We're going to be in Psalm 44 this morning, and Psalm 44 can come across as a little confusing, as you'll see. We're going to start in the first eight verses, and you've got the psalmist looking back, and sort of everything is green lights and blue skies. Everything is great, and he's giving thanks. And you get to verse 9, and you suddenly realize this was the setup, but the theme isn't praise and thanksgiving. The theme is lament. Because what God was doing in the past that the psalmist is thankful for is not occurring in the moment. And he's reeling, he's confused, he's trying to figure that out. And he comes to a conclusion that I think we'll come to as well. Alan Ross summarizes, or this is our entry into the psalm, sort of to put our mind in the right place. He says this, Even though the people have suffered a humiliating defeat in battle, which they did not deserve and don't understand, They pray that God will deliver them because of his loyal love, basing their confidence on God's past dealings with their fathers and the present steadfastness of their faith. So based on God's loving kindness and faith. As we read through this, you'll notice there are similarities with Psalms 42 and 43. We looked at just last week. Some of those I'll point out, some I will not. I'll mention too, I'm going to segue just a bit to give some detail to things the song mentions in passing, not the main theme, but I want to uh, capitalize on those anyway. So if your Bible's open or your app's open, Psalm 44, the introduction, uh, just like Psalm 42 and 3, to the choir master, this was written to be sung in the temple, and it's a mass skill, that means it's instructive. So when we're reading his story and his emotions and his confusion and his conclusions were meant to take that to heart. It's not just an emotional experience that's being relayed, but it's actually something that's meant to instruct us as well, and it's of or for the sons of Korah. Uh, This is true of all Psalms 42 through 49. So verses 1 through 8, and we say that God is sovereign. When you read these first uh, eight verses, The psalmist looks back and he says 15 times of God, you or your. So as he's looking back, he's giving God credit for everything that he's giving thanks and praise for. He says, God, it's all because of you. So verse 1, starting there. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. So he's writing in a time when the temple is up, and he's looking back all the way to the Exodus, and then Israel being brought into the land of promise by God's doing. He says, them you planted, but you afflicted the peoples, you set your people free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, 
nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, so not just former generations, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, in God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. So the opening, it's great. The psalmist is looking back, and he says, way back in the day, and actually more recently too, within his own memory, he says, God, all those deliverances and all the military victories that you've given us, all you, not our arm, it's, it was all you. He also states that negatively, verse 3, he says, looking back on former generations, it wasn't their sword or arm. He says, in his own day, it's not my bow, not my sword, present generation. It wasn't us in the past, it's not us today that accomplishes deliverance for us. So the psalmist knew that God was always the reason for Israel's success and blessing. Now, I knew this from at least a couple different sources. Uh, One is, remember at this stage in Israel, some of, not all, but some of the Bible, what we would call the Old Testament today, was present for them. So he would have known and read from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That would have been the Exodus account. Joshua was present then, probably 1 and 2 Samuel as well. So he would have known from reading his Bible what God had done. But more to the point and directly out of this psalm, he knew because his father, and it says just in the Hebrew, it's plural fathers. We heard from our fathers. That might mean just this last generation before us. It might mean our fathers, plural, this generation. But it could also imply fathers going back historically. We heard from our fathers who heard from their fathers and so forth what you did. And this is, I, want to, I just want to plant on this for a minute. This guy knew something because his dad told him and because his dad had told him. And it sort of raises the question for us, what are we, parents, what are we telling our children? What are they getting from us? So this psalmist knew God's past faithfulness because his dad told him, as his dad had told him. So he's personally aware because this was family transmission. This was one generation telling the next what God had been up to. And so for us at home, that might mean saying broadly what God has done in the past, but specifically also, how has God been at work in our lives? And do our kids know that? So that faith is personal and it's real. It's not just something that happened way back in the day to the people that we feel disconnected from, But God is alive and well today, and we're telling our kids what that has looked like for us. Now, that's not always uh, blue skies and green lights, isn't it? As we'll see in this psalm, it's not. And it's not always true for us, but yet God's faithfulness in all of that should be something we're transmitting from one generation to the next. You see this, I'm just going to point out a couple of these. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, in the New Testament, generations later, Paul's writing his last letter to his protege, Timothy, and he points this out. He says, Timothy, your faith came from your grandmother, 
and your mother, Eunice and Lois. You're the third generation that has embraced faith in Christ. You're not the first. Your grandmother and your mother were telling you their stories relaying God's faithfulness, and you've come into that as the third generation. By the way, too, you know, in Hebrew culture, men, Deuteronomy 6, fathers, men, husbands were the ones that were particularly committed with passing on the faith and the information of the Torah, God's Word, right? That's what fathers and, and men are called to. But when the men aren't there, or they're there and they're not believers, God's not below using women and moms and grandmothers to do the same thing, right? Because that was Timothy's story. It wasn't dad and granddad. It was mom and grandmother. But we want to make sure we're passing on not just general revelation, but we're telling our kids and our grandkids how God has been at work in our lives, the things we're personally aware of. You see this also in 2 Timothy 3.15. This is one of the kids' probably Bible verses. Paul tells Timothy from childhood, so remember he's third generation Christian, grandmother, mother, from childhood you've known the sacred writings that give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So they weren't just relaying the, the personal faith they had and maybe their own stories, but guys, they were giving Timothy the truth of God's word. So he was raised hearing the truth of God's word. And is that as parents, is that what we're giving our children? So this is how God has been at work in the past. This is how God's been at work in our lives and our family's past. And this is what's true because it's recorded by God in his word. All scripture is inspired, right? That's what Timothy grew up with. That's what we want to make sure that we're giving our children as well. And I, I, it would be hard for me to overstate the degree to which for me this is personal. Uh, Psalm 145 verse 4 uh, one generation shall praise your name to the next. It's one of my favorite verses. Uh, I'm a father. I wanted nothing more than to be a husband and a father. We raised four girls. And you know, as we're raising them, you know what we pray. Lord, would you save them early so they grow up knowing you? And you know, we've got, uh, we've got 12 living grandchildren. You know what we pray for them? Lord, would you bring them to yourself early in faith so they grow up knowing you? Because you know what we want to do? We want to be one generation that's declared God's praise and greatness to the next generation who will do the same thing to their children, and they are. And you see that in Psalm 78, verses 3 and 4 again, because this is a theme in Scripture. So the psalmist here in Psalm 44, he's just referencing it. This is how I've heard this, but it's a big deal for us, and it's a big deal through Scripture. In Psalm 78, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist talks about four generations about this care with which the transmission of the knowledge of God is going to go from four generations. So your father's told you so you could tell your children so they can rise up and tell their children. Four generations. So the psalmist is inheriting this testimony of faith. So from God's word, that would have been extant at the day these were written, but also personally within his own extended household. We want to make sure to the degree that's incumbent on us to do the same. So it's not just parents too, but grandparents have a role in this as well, right? Even in our disconnected families today, what's our influence on our grandchildren or great-grandchildren as well? We want to have that kind of godly influence also. With that history in mind, as well as his own experience, the psalmist says in verse 8, that not only has God been their boast in the past, but they will continue to give him thanks going forward. 
So he looks back and he says, it's been lovely, Lord. It's been great. You've delivered us. We're so thankful. But he says before verse 9, he says, we're going to continue to give you thanks. We will give thanks to your name forever. Okay, we look back and there's reason to give thanks. But it's significant that he says it here right before he gets into verse 9. And he says, verse 8, the first half, in God we have boasted. So he said negatively, it's not our power and our abilities that have blessed us. It was God. We boast in God. And he says, and we're always going to boast in God. And that humility and thankfulness are appropriate. The psalmist is saying, um, we're not all that. That God, you're all that. It's not that we're so significant. And if you remember, some of you were here a couple years ago. We went through a study on Deuteronomy. And one of the lessons was, repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy, God says why he chose to bless Israel uniquely among all the peoples of the earth. And he goes through this list and he says, it's not because you were so numerous. And it's not because you were so great. And it's not because you were all that. For God's purposes, he said he chose Israel. And the psalmist is a descendant of that choice. So he understands that it was God that was determined to bless us, not because we deserved his blessing. God sovereignly chose to bless us in a way that's unique among all the families of the earth, Abraham and his heirs. So it was always about God. <clears throat> the psalmist knew that and understood that that was his starting point. So if you've experienced good in your life, if you've experienced blessing, if, if we look back on our own lives and say there's so much that I've been so thankful for, so many good things, we say that's good. And why did we get that stuff? Was that because we're all that? Was that because I've been so good and I've been smart or whatever? And at the end of the day, we say, well, actually, no. And I want to go back to the New Testament for just a minute to make this point. Uh, guys, God gives his glory to no one but himself. And when we, when we turn to glorify ourselves, God cuts that off. That's a root. It's a weed. We want to cut, cut that off. When Paul the Apostle, representing God, wrote to the church at Corinth, he was writing to a group that thought they were that. That God was lucky to have them on his team. That he'd chosen well when he chose them. And so Paul has to disabuse them of their pride repeatedly through this letter. Right from the very beginning. Guys, if you have faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, is it because you were smarter than someone else? Were you better than someone else? Were you humbler than someone else? Right from the start, this is 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says this, to the group that thinks they're all that. He says, consider your calling, brothers. He says, look around at those around you in the church. Not many of you were wise according to the world. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. What did Paul just tell them this group looked like to the world? Fools. Foolish. God shows what is weak to the world to shame the strong. He says, you guys don't look like much, frankly. He says, God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. And he does it for this reason, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He said, God chose you, and it's not because of your positives, 
It's because of your negatives. Because in choosing you for salvation and bringing you to saving faith, He's magnifying Himself, not you, not us. In fact, He goes on to say, because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, and Christ has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, this is from Jeremiah 9, by the way, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That, the psalmist could have written that, right? It, it's about God, it's not about us. Our boast is in God because that's where it has to be. If it's in any place else or anyone else or on myself, it's mistaken, badly mistaken. He goes on to further the point. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He asks them, we can ask ourselves, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you weren't given. If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So think about this for a minute. Um, we might say on one hand, we as an individual, we're the product of our parents, right? So we might say, you know, I'm who I am or what I am um, because of what my parents were, you know, the DNA and the, the, the genes and all that stuff. And we say, well, that's true. That's true. But who wove us together in our mother's womb? Who, who actually, at the end of the day, created us? Who wove us together in our mother's womb? Psalm 139. Well, God does. He takes credit for that. Who determined our height and stature and our physical attributes? Guys, if you're a great athlete, God, you've come with a certain set of physical aptitudes or skills. Now, you can develop them, Okay. But you know when they, they tell a kid you can be anything or do anything, that's a lie, isn't it? That's a lie. Either physically or mentally, everybody can't do everything. So the assets that we have, we can develop, but we're developing what we were given. Or those attributes and positives and assets that we were given, we can neglect and not develop. But you see, the point remains the same. You're working with what you were given. That's the point. Who determined our intellectual capabilities? Guys, if we're really smart and we're proud that we're really smart, we've missed the mark again because we can develop our intellect, right? This isn't saying any of that. We can develop our intellect and we can work hard at learning, absolutely, and should, but we're working with what God gave us. That's Paul's point. Uh, who gave us the power to make a living? Who determined the time? This is a big one. Do you know the lives we enjoy? So if you were here for Sunday school a week or so ago, a week ago, yeah. Uh, what would your life be like if you were born in Haiti? Just south of the U.S. What would your life be like if you were born in the Dominican Republic, which is wealthy compared to Haiti next door? Would it be like this? It would not be like this. So do, do, does Mike pat Mike on the back for being born an American in this time, in this place? Nope. You see, the whole thing, the psalmist's point and Paul's point is anything that's praiseworthy, it's praiseworthy to God. So we want to be faithful stewards, and please don't misunderstand. We want to be faithful with what God's given us to be faithful with, but we're being faithful with what he gave. 
So the psalmist looks back and says, Lord, you're all that. You are our boast. And we'll praise you forever because you're always our boast. If there's praise to give, it's always to you. It's healthy and it's appropriate to look back over our lives and remind ourselves that our blessings are because of God and God is good. It humbles us. Like the psalmist, the proper place to start when considering past success and blessing is always God. So look at verse 9. Now you remember the psalmist says, our boast is in you because you've delivered us in the past 15 times, you and your. Now here in the next from verses 9 through 16, he's going to credit God six times with suffering and with loss and with disappointment, okay? God is sovereign. Verse 9, but, so here's the present, this is the reason the psalm's written, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. So we'll talk about this, we'll fill this out a little bit, but they've, they've lost a military battle, a big one. And so the spoil is the enemy has come in and taken their stuff, taken their wealth. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, death in war, and have scattered us among the nations. That's, that's the captives taken during warfare, taken away from their homes and scattered throughout the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. These are Jews that are taken captives and then sold as slaves. And you know, supply and demand worked back then too. You got a bunch of slaves suddenly for sale, the price goes down. There were so many Jews that were being sold, auctioned in slavery, the price had dropped. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So we've gone from blue skies and green lights to the bottom has fallen out of my life in one verse. Where did this come from? We don't know, nobody knows with certainty what specific historic event or period this is recording, but I want to bring one in just to say it would be like this. And this would be like in the days of good King Hezekiah. Under Hezekiah, um, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came in, and they were the big boys on the block. And because there had been a, a transition in the leadership in that empire, Judah and others around them had, had quit paying off the Assyrians. And so Sennacherib had come into the land of Judah. The military assault was disastrous. And your study sheet has this, 2 Chronicles 32, 1. I'll read, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities. This was a disastrous, disastrous military campaign for Judah. Now, when you read this and you get to the end of the story, you realize that when that same army encamped around Jerusalem and boasted they would take Jerusalem as well, they don't. And God destroys that army. And later, quite a bit later, a Sennacherib is murdered uh, back in his capital. But guys, every fortified city in Judah was taken by the Assyrians. 
And in the story, and archaeologists will tell you this today, Lachish was the second most defendable city in all of Judah, second only to Jerusalem. Lachish fell. So all these Jews were slaughtered across Judah. Jerusalem was the only place that wasn't conquered. Jews were slaughtered. It's estimated that 200,000 were taken prisoner. So it's that kind of an assault, a loss that the psalmist has in view. It was disastrous. Something like that was behind the psalmist's lament. Now, if you try and apply something like this today, I think it's difficult. You might say today, if I'm a Christian living in Ukraine, I know what this looks like. Maybe eastern Ukraine or Kiev, if I've had the bombs come down near my house that we're suffering loss and our family's wealth is gone and lives are lost and people have been taken, something like that. For us today, you know, what's the bottom falling out? It, it could be health, could be marriage, right? Could be family. We, we wouldn't minimize that we can experience all kinds of disappointments and losses as well. Probably not on the same kind of category, though, that the psalmist had experienced. He's reeling. Uh, now, verses 17 through 22 kind of bring us into his mind in what's going on. So I look back and I see all God's great victories, but I, I look now and I say, but more recently, it's, this has not been, history isn't being repeated right now. There's been great loss. And this is where he brings in his confusion and his summary. So you remember the Jews lived with the expectation that if they obeyed God, Yahweh, if they were faithful, God would bless them, blue skies and green lights. But if they were faithless, God would, it would be very different. It would be very hard. It would be very difficult. That's where this comes in, his confusion. Verse 17, he says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we've not been false to your covenant. That was always the thing. We've been true to your covenant, Lord. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. We're doing what you've told us to do. We're being faithful. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, verse 22, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the psalmist now is making his complaint or his lament to God. Lord, we didn't forget you. We've kept covenant. Our hearts and our actions are according to your ways. We've been obeying you. So what gives? What, what's going on? This is from 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. These are on your study sheet, 2 Kings 18 and 19, and Isaiah 36 and 37. Because again, what did it look like for the psalmist? So Lord, we're being faithful. Well, back in Hezekiah's day again, not that this is the time, but it would be like this, at least. Hezekiah, when he became king, he returned the nation to faithfulness to Yahweh after his wicked father Ahaz's death. So he cleansed and repaired the temple. He restored temple worship. He reinstituted the Passover celebration. He provided for the priesthood. In fact, 2 Chronicles 31, 20 and 21 say, Hezekiah did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. That's what it was like when the psalmist wrote his experience. Everything we know to do, Lord, that's what we're doing. And this is still what happened. And that's why there's confusion. 
there's lament and there's complaint and there's confusion. And then there's verse 22. Verse 22, this is what the psalmist concluded. So he says, there's a lot of things we don't understand, we don't get, but I've come to this conclusion. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So verse 22 repeats a phrase in verse 11, you've made us like sheep for slaughter. And it's a key verse because the writer winds down to what he concludes must be the cause for Judah's troubles in his day. The psalmist concludes that the reason Judah is being oppressed by foreign armies is simply because they belong to Yahweh. It's because they're God's people that they're suffering as they are. For your sake we are killed. We are sheep to be slaughtered because we belong to you. He doesn't know what else their distress can be attributed to other than that they belong to the Lord in a world setting opposed to God. Now, when he says this, he says it or we read it, we're not saying God's not sovereign. The psalmist says, Lord, you're the one who's brought this to pass. But you've brought it to pass against us, not because we're faithless, but because we're yours. You're still doing this. You're still the cause behind all this. We conclude this. And as you know, this is a big theme throughout Scripture. God uses loss, harm, suffering in the lives of those he loves to accomplish his purposes, not only in our times of faithless wandering, when we might say we deserved it, this was God correcting us, but yes, even in our days of consistent faithfulness, which is what was going on for the psalmist in his day. And if you go back briefly, Job, you remember the story of Job? When you read the front end of that, guys, Job's a model for any of us, isn't he? He had the wealth of the world, but how does he describe himself? He's the one that's taking care of widows and orphans. He's praying regularly for his children and for others. He's humble before God, all positive. If I look like Job, I'd think I'd done well. And yet in that level of humility and material blessing, you remember God in the story, it's not Satan who initiates what happens, it's God who initiates what happens to Job. So at the end of the book, it's like, well, what was God accomplishing? He, everything he does for Job is through love. Ultimately, what was he accomplishing? The end of the book, Job does say this, I'd heard about you. And I thought I knew you. But now I've seen you. And I realize I, I didn't know you at all. And now I repent in dust and sackcloth and ashes because I thought I was humble, but now I've seen you. I see how lofty and exalted you are and how abased in comparison I am before you. And I know something I didn't know before. And of course, God blesses him again. There's a verse in Hebrews 12, verse 6, that's actually a quotation from Proverbs 3, 12. And it says, the Lord disciplines or trains those he loves. In the Hebrew, in the, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the, the term for train or uh, discipline usually is a broad term, and it could mean training or educating your children broadly. In any way, positive, negative, there's no connotation. It could just be, I say, Junior, this is the way we do it, not that way. Okay, that's training or discipline. It's training broadly. But guys, that same verse says this, God chastises those he loves. Now, that's not a word I like. Because chastised synonyms are whipped, 
scourged, beaten. Chastise is pain. Chastise is suffering. And this verse quoted in Hebrews 12 says, if you don't receive training and chastisement, it only means you're not God's child. Because this is how he treats all of his children. Because he's a good father. Because he's loving. Because he knows, because of our fallen nature, there are things we only learn through suffering. There are things the psalmist only learned through suffering. That's true today. It's always been true since the fall. So out of the confusion, disastrous loss, knowing it wasn't due to the nation's unfaithfulness, the psalmist concludes the nation was suffering simply for God's sake because they were God's people. And God was redemptively using that suffering for their good. In that sense, suffering was a badge of honor. They were suffering because they belonged to the Lord. Um, I never pray for patience, and I don't ask God for suffering. I want to be up front about this. Uh, there's a great quip in the uh, old 1971 movie, Fiddler on the Roof. Just curious, just know how old I am. How many hands have seen? Okay. Oh, wow. Okay, great. I'm not, you guys are almost as old as me. Thank you. <laughs> so the, the quip is this, uh, the, the old fun uh, Tevye, the, the Jewish guy who's living in Tsarist Russia in a small town, and he's just received word that there's another official state-sanctioned pogrom against the Jews. The local sheriff has told him, oh, oh, by the way, some trouble's coming your way. This was normal for the Jews under the czars, by the way. Another one's coming. And Tevye, speaking to God, says this, I know, I know we're the chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? <laughs> On this suffering, we're, here it comes again. Uh, chosen people, it's an honor. Yeah, Lord, it's an honor, but could you give it to somebody else sometimes? God's chosen people then and now are not only chosen for blessing, friends, but for suffering because they are God's. And in God's hand, that suffering is always redemptive, always redemptive. The experience the psalmist describes was not only true of the nation, but guys, it was particularly acutely true of the nation's Messiah. You know, we said Jesus is in, by the way, you heard this in Sunday school this morning, Jesus is throughout scriptures, right? Even if it's not directly saying this is Jesus, you see him inferred throughout. Well, think of this. Let me just walk you through a few verses. There's more than this there, but I'll go through a few. Listen to these phrases again in relation to Jesus. And this is primarily in his sin-bearing role, right? But remember that all the suffering Jesus experienced on earth just as a human, for, forget the crucifixion, for just a second, just as a human on planet earth, that's a tough go, even in a blessed life. And then additionally, in his unique sin-bearing role on the cross, that was all by the Father, on the Son, ultimately to bless and honor the Son, right? All that suffering was ultimately so the Father could heap more glory on the Son. So in his sin-bearing role, Jesus' suffering is unique. We don't participate in that. But Psalm 44, suffering sounds a lot like what Jesus experienced. Verse 9 the psalmist says we're rejected, Matthew 27. Israel rejects Jesus in favor of Barabbas, a murderer. Uh, verse 46 in that chapter, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Jesus calls from the cross. 
Isaiah 53.3, Jesus, speaking of Christ, of course, he was despised and rejected, this man of sorrows. Verse 10, our psalm, those who hated Israel had taken spoils. The only spoils Jesus had were the clothes on his back. And of course, Luke 23.34, the soldiers took the spoils of war, his garments. Verses 13, 14, and 16, taunted, scorned, derided, laughingstock, reviled, and shamed. Matthew 27, again, they put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him, struck his head. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him. The robbers reviled him. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, the soldiers mocked him. You can see that what the psalmist experienced, Jesus experienced like no one else on earth ever has, that suffering. Uh, verse 11 and 22, like a sheep for slaughter. This church's name comes from John 1:29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was born a lamb for slaughter for your sins and for mine. Or Isaiah 53, all we, Isaiah on one hand, all we're, we're like sheep. We've gone astray like sheep do. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's why he's like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. And like a sheep, before it shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. That's Jesus. Israel experienced it. Jesus experienced to the nth degree in our redemption. God's chosen Savior didn't suffer because he'd done something wrong. He suffered because he was absolutely fulfilling the Father's goodwill for future glory. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul takes that same verse, verse 22, and he applies it to Jesus' followers. That's to you and I today still. So Paul had stated in chapter 8 that those God called, foreknew, predestined, he was working all things for our good, we stand justified and glorified, like the psalmist, Paul says, this is what God's done for us. Paul looks back and he says, oh, this is all that God's done for us. We boast in God. God saved us in Christ. And he starts asking some questions. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The correct answer is no one. Because God didn't withhold Jesus, he'll give us anything. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who can, who can, bring, who can accuse us before God? Well, no one because God's the one justifying us in Christ. Verse 34, who can condemn us? Well, again, no one because Jesus died and rose and intercedes for us today. So we're good on all those counts. Then he gets to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, I'm sure for everyone in here, if you've walked with the Lord any length of time, there have been times where you felt like, Lord, where are you? I'm on my own and I can't feel you and I don't sense your presence and, and I'm looking for you. And with the psalmist, I'm confused. I don't understand what's going on. I feel like it's just me and I got nothing. Paul then uses language, guys, that comes out of warfare. What can separate you, Christ's followers, from God? Can tribulation, and that word flips us in Greek, it means like you're pushed down, you're in a compressor, and you can't do anything except get squashed under its weight tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword it's kind of the worst thing that could happen in the roman world right can any of those things separate you from god and his love verse 36 as it's written and this is psalm 44 verse 22 
for your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says in his day, he quotes verse 22, and he says, that's us. If the worst thing you can imagine happens, if the U.S. was invaded tomorrow and your family is killed and your home is destroyed and you're somehow taken into slavery, have you been separated from the love of God in Christ? Remember the rest of chapter 8 says nothing. It articulates you know, angels, demons, up, down, future, past, nothing. That's the point. But sometimes it feels like something separated us from Christ. And Paul assures, just like the psalmist, it's not that you did something wrong, guys. God's sovereignly bringing about his divine will, ultimately for his glory and your good. And Paul says the same thing for Christians, for those following Jesus. Paul wants believers to know that even when it appears they've been forsaken by God because their circumstances are so dire, like the psalmist, they can't be separated. And in fact, Christian suffering brought about by others on us when all other causes are ruled out are assumed to be suffering because they belong to Christ and are therefore a badge of honor. I'm suffering for God. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, for my name. Rejoice and be glad, your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Psalm 44 again. For your sake, Lord, this is what we're suffering. 1 Peter 2, Jesus is offered as an example of suffering. Acts 5.41, this is not what most of us would say, but you remember when the apostles were taken before the Jewish leaders, they were beaten, and you remember what it says when they left? They're just beaten. It hurt. It was a whooping, and I don't know what it felt like, and I'm good with that. But when they left, they rejoiced being counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. They said, we're, we're good with this. That suffering is a badge of honor because it's for Christ. It's for God, just like Psalm 44. Oh, yeah, I want to mention this too. Um, the kind of suffering he experienced, and that's alluded to in Romans 8, is not, I think, what any of us here have experienced. Uh, uh, warfare, persecution, uh, death because you're a Christian, loss of life, limb, or property. But friends, this is the norm today for Christians all over the world. You know, every Sunday we pray for persecuted Christians. We get that information from Voice of the Martyrs. Your study sheet has the website. You can get a weekly email that just tells you who to pray for. This person's in prison. This, this church was burned down. These Christians were relocated, whatever. But you know, God loves them no less than he loves us. With all the tribulation they have for Christ as Christians, everything they're experiencing is still ultimately for God's glory and for their good. But Scripture calls us, 1 Corinthians 12 and Hebrews call us to pray for them, to support them in the ways we can as fellow Christians simply through prayer. That's something we should be doing. We may not experience suffering like that, but certainly that's not true of other Christians. Well, he closes with this prayer Verse 23 through 26, uh, awake, 
Uh, why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Now, we know another psalm says, uh, Israel's Savior neither slumbers nor sleeps. So he's not really accusing God of being able to sleep. But it's as if, Lord, won't you get up? You know, won't you enter in? Won't you come and do something for us here? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, he doesn't say redeem us because we're all that, does he? He doesn't say rise up for us because we've earned your favor. He says rise up and help us because your steadfast, loyal love, that's what you're characterized by, and that's what I appeal to. We boast in you, and when we need help, we appeal to you and yourself and your own qualities, not on our worthiness. The psalmist says, Lord, our hope remains always and only in you. We look to you and we wait for you. Friends, Christians share that same hope. We look back. God has already come in the person and saving work of the Lord Jesus. The real question for us is, are we trusting in Christ and Christ alone to save us? Is that our story? Do I look back and I say, God blessed me in Christ by his doing for his honor and my good. Have I trusted in Christ? Guys, people are going to church every Sunday that are headed to hell right now because they're saying, I'm all that. And none of us are all that. Have we trusted in Christ and Christ alone as the psalmist had? Jesus will rise up for our help when he descends from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air and thus we will always be with the Lord. That's what we're looking for. That's our hope. Set your hope, First Peter, set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus. That's when it happens. So our appeal as we look forward is not on our own worthiness. It's on Christ. And like the psalmist, our appeals to God in our times of need are based on Christ and his worthiness, not on our own. And meanwhile, we want to do what the psalmist did. We want to set our hopes on God. So if you would, rise, please, and let's read from Romans 8 together as the worship team comes up. Read with me, please. Who shall separate us from the